पंद्रह सेकंड में मैं क्या कर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा के एम कनेक्ट प्लस ऐप से बिजली का बिल भर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा भारत का अंतर्राष्ट्रीय बैंक वेलकम टू जयपुर I am here at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival 2020 happening right now at the Digi Palace and what you're about to hear in this episode is a recording of a live session that just happened here it is my favorite question to any actress when they come which side would you like to sit which side is the right profile oh dear the clichés have already started <laughs> lisa ray has written this incredible book and it was lying on my desk for a while and of course it has slipped my mind because uh, every day we receive tens of books uh, on my table some get read some get put away and then in frankfurt i think japria came by and she said uh, so what's the decision do we have lisa the japulicha festival and i said absolutely love to have her i believe the book is fantastic we had had a discussion in hong kong earlier about getting her and then of course again for some reason it completely slipped my mind till i actually picked it up and i started reading it and uh, lisa it's so beautifully written and forget close to the bone it's really close to the soul and what i wanted to start by asking you is that what inspired you to write the book thank you so much sanjoy thank you for reading the book as well and for inviting me and thank you everybody for being here uh, i just quickly wanted to add that it actually has been one of my greatest aspirations to be on this stage and i had because i'm a bibliophile i'm a reader first and of course a writer in my next avatar and it was always an aspiration also to visit jlf uh and somewhere in the back of my mind i tucked away this little secret wish and i said i think i'll actually go there when i have a book to talk about and indeed this moment has come and uh, somehow manifested itself so thank you thank you so much it really is much more exciting than a film release believe me and when you read the book uh and hopefully through our discussion you'll understand why but yes yeah, so to get back to why did i write close to the bone so i have actually come across this very interesting word recently that i'd like to share uh because again as a writer as a reader we enjoy words you have to primarily enjoy words sentences and this word is codywapple codywapple does anyone know what codywapple means no okay i'll share it codywapple means purposeful travel towards an yet unknown destination and I feel that it's a very very appropriate word to both to describe my life, myself, uh my identity and perhaps in a sense it encapsulate also the book close to the bone. The other way I have of describing it is a travelog of the soul but sometimes that also sounds a little bit intense and deep. Um and the two more reasons, primary reasons why I wrote the book. Number 1, I've only ever wanted to be a writer. 
And I think I've expressed that also very completely in the book. It was my one aspiration as a young introverted girl lying on a purple shag rug. This is the 70s in Toronto. And dreaming of places that she'll go, but also trying to figure out what is the best possible profession where you have the least possible human contact. So I came up with writer. I came up with academic, and uh, somehow or the other, I fell into being an actress, which is definitely not a way of avoiding human beings. So the story of how I became an actor and went on this very strange trajectory was mine to tell. And also, I think that obviously what happens when you're in a very high-profile profession, like acting, and particularly in India, is there's a certain kind of perception of us. There's a certain kind of typecasting, if you will. And also as a woman, I had felt for a very long time that it was very important that I seize my own narrative and tell my own story from my own... Hi, Shanaz. Hi, a friend of mine there, sorry. <laughs> uh, and I, I needed to tell my own story on my own terms because there are certain, uh, certain aspects of my life story and my life trajectory that are a little bit uh, unusual, you might say. You know, you're talking about story on your own terms. You've lived life on your own terms. But before we come to that, uh, you, you talk about yourself as Indo-Canadian, but you're actually Indo-Polish-Canadian. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how your dad from a very uh, conservative family in some ways, uh, staying in Shambazar, sort of came to meet your mother. Yes, I mean, perhaps on, on, on some level I owe my, um, my literary compulsions and passions to my Bengali bloodline. You know, any Bengalis out there? Come on, bongs, right? And right next to me. So we can't help it. It's in the blood, <laughs> you might say. But of course, uh, yeah, I have a, a, an unusual genesis. Um, my father is uh, Bengali, very Bengali, brought up in Shambazar, which is, if you know anything about Calcutta, North Calcutta, one time was considered posh and uh, still the bastion of very traditional Bengali Brahmin families, learned families. And my mother's Polish. And uh, they met in Warsaw when my father was a young student and he was studying and they in English. Know, and then you knew no language that was They did not shared. speak each other's language, you know. So my father was a young student and in those days uh, he was a part of the Bengali Students uh, Association and one of their passions was touring Eastern Bloc countries and singing Rabindranath Sangeet in suits, if you can imagine. And uh, I said, Dad, Bullshit, you were not a cultural ambassador. You wanted to meet blonde women. <laughs> True, right? True. Saibat. And sure enough, that's what happened. On the very last night in the University of Warsaw, my father chanced upon this very angelic-looking uh, woman, blonde hair, blue eyes, and he bought her a drink, and they danced, and obviously some attraction was lit, and, but he left the next day for England, and they did not speak each other's language. So it's very intriguing, and there were many, many... Over the years, um, it became part of sort of your family mythology. Oh, this is how my parents met, and somehow or the other, he managed to smuggle her out of the, from behind the Iron Curtain, and they got married in England, etc., etc. But finally, when I was writing, this is a very interesting aspect of writing a memoir, is I really had a chance to actually sit down with my father and get 
past the mythologies and past the stories that we tell each, uh, each other as families, I said, Dad, you have to explain exactly what happened because it's not making sense. And there's going to be a lot of other people reading this who are going to say, how is that possible? How did they communicate? Because they started exchanging letters. And if I had not actually pinpointed him, um, it turns out that there was this wonderful Irish woman living in my mother's hamlet outside of Warsaw. And she was married to a local Pole. And so she became the translator of these love letters. If you could, I mean, it's just so beautiful and poetic, even in my own mind, you know? And my mother sort of, I, I picture her actually bending beside her, her eyes shining and, you know, learning the language of love through this Irish translator. And, you know, it's, it certainly is a, a part of the romantic truth of my origins. But beyond that, what I realized when I was also uh, digging into my own family histories, of course, as you pointed out, Sanjo, I consider myself a bit of a uh, against the stream kind of a person. Not just, not just a bit, let me tell you. If you read the book, it's more than just a bit. <laughs> a little bit counterculture, a little bit unconventional. And you know, when you're young and arrogant, you feel like I'm the first and only rebel of this entire world and nobody else can understand me. And, uh, you know, this, this rebellious streak that has actually been a thread, an enduring thread in my life. And, uh, you know, I've mellowed obviously somewhat in the years, but I think it's still there, that, that compulsion to challenge the status quo. I realized it was planted in me by my parents. You know, it was actually passed on in the bloodline, through the genes, pretty in much, the bone. Pretty much in the DNA imprint. I mean, in many ways, the wanderlust that your father had from a very, uh, from Shambazar to sort of wander off and then settle outside. But again, in, in terms of the DNA, uh, letting the car, putting it into reverse gear, letting it roll into neutral and letting it roll down. How old were you then? Yeah, there's an interesting anecdote that my mother used to relate again and again, and I must have been about three years old. And, uh, you know, as usual, she had taken me out grocery shopping, and this was the 70s, and we're in a big boat of a car. And uh, she had to actually sort of park the car and go and physically open the garage door. This was taking place in Canada. And somehow or the other, at three, I maneuvered myself into the front seat and somehow maneuvered the clutch into reverse and started backing up. And it became, again, a part of our family mythology, but the symbolism was also very clear to a lot of people, even my own mother, because there I was, age three, trying to get away. And this, of course, has again been a very enduring theme in my life of uh, movement and exploration. And at one point in my life, it wasn't necessarily traveling to something, as much as probably traveling away from something. And now, of course, it's a lot more conscious. But, you know, this nomadic kind of um, quality of my life has, again, really defined who I am and shaped my life experiences in so many ways. Your Polish, your Polish side of you, in many ways, your, your nanny, your, your grandmother with her wonderful uh, clawed heels, as you describe it, dressing you up in princess frocks and walking, marching you, to her world. Tell us about that. Tell us about the Polish world, which your grandmother was very keen that that's what you should be brought up in, not this dark skin sort of other world that she didn't quite know how to accept. Yes, I, I think it's, it's again, 
you know, I used to think perhaps it was unique to my family, but I'm sure that uh, obviously when you are of um, uh, a mixed race couple uh, or, you know, and particularly when the cultures are so diametrically opposite in some way, um, you know, there's obviously going to be some politics in the house at some point or the other. And my maternal grandmother, my nani, was a very strong personality and she actually brought me up for the first few years of my life. And she was a very fervent Catholic. And my, both my parents were non-practicing uh, atheists, you know, as it were. Uh, although I was brought up with a very uh, strong Vedic kind of philosophy because my father was a scientist, so he loved to sort of equate, you know, the philosophical origins of Hinduism with his studies as a scientist, etc., etc. And my mom just never wanted to go to church. So the church going fell, of course, to the most vulnerable person in the household, and that was me, you know, young Lisa. And my grandmother used to, um, she was very grand and very European, and she believed in elegancia, as she called it, and living in a very elegant life. And this was very much uh, diametrically opposite also from my mother, who, was, who had left her... Uh, cultural origins in order to reinvent herself. And that's often what we do. That's the immigrant story. And that was something also that I realized looking at my parents, and I apply this to all immigrants, to all people who travel, who change their countries of origin, is that you have to be artists in a way. You have to be very creative to recreate yourself and to create a new kind of a grammar, a new language, a new family for yourself. But anyways, so my parents were busy creating their, their, their new family and their new life in Canada. And my grandmother, I was basically her charge, you know. And so she used to march me down to Roncesville, which was a neighborhood in Canada where we used to go to church. And she used to dress me up in my most princessy dress. Now, I was horrified by going to Catholic churches because I felt that the, the symbols were very terrifying, you know, Christ on the cross and all of the blood and, you know, and especially at Easter became even more terrifying um, on one hand. And, um, you know, my grandmother would sort of march me around and she would read from these Polish newspapers and they, you know, in those days they would report quite often that 200 people had perished in some sort of a train crash in India. And she would just shake her head and go, I hope that your father's relatives have not perished in this terrible thing that happened. And, you know, I mean, in her very comically unsophisticated way, her desire was to somehow condition me away from my heathen side, you know, and make sure that I didn't, you know, develop these tastes for spicy food and become too heathen. There's nothing she could do about the color of my skin. But, um, you know, she loved me, but, you know, it was, it was simply quite comical uh, to see this play out in our family and to see her own little sort of petty prejudices play out. But, you know, I, I look back on it now with great affection. And, of course, the irony of everything, and maybe you could say that, the, you know, with the turn of the wheel, you know, uh, karma has dictated that my strongest connection, my strongest alignment is with India today. So... Unfortunately, Granny was unsuccessful. <laughs> I think the Karvapasi Brigade will love that one. But anyway, uh, Lisa, staying with, the, staying with identity, because, you know, much of the book is, of course, it's your journey, but it's also about identity. And there you were, Calcutta, via Poland and Canada, back to Bombay, back to your very Bollywood Indian roots in, in, in many ways. 
how did you sort of navigate and negotiate because you kept going sort of back and forth new york and toronto and moved to la and then came back to bombay and you know the circle continues how do you see identity especially in today's time where travel while it's become easier has become much more difficult to move to another country than it was before how do you see identity and migration that's very ironic, isn't it? And that's an excellent question. So I just wanted to touch on the issue of identity, which has been, um, you know, um, it's created a lot of conflict in my personal history, in my personal life, in my view of the world. And it's been a good, it's, it's also presented a great struggle for me. And perhaps that is where also good writing comes from. Um, you know, it's this impulse to be able to share the inner struggle, to somehow give it shape and form and articulate it. And in my life, identity uh, was not only defined by blood and, you know, my ethnic origins or being of mixed blood, and that, although that was complex enough, but it was also defined by movement. And it was also, in a sense, uh, defined by how other people perceived me. Because I want to go back to the fact that I became an accidental actress, and I'm not even being facetious or cute when I say that. It's a literal fact of my life that I never planned on being in front of the camera or being a part of the profession that I'm finally identified with so strongly. So it was a great struggle for me to be able to marry, you know, it's, and on some level my life became a split screen. There was a perception of me with, you know, or whatever we perceive so-called celebrities or actresses to be. You know, and it's a long list of things. Obviously, we, vain and, you know, concerned with what side we're photographed in and, you know, and concerned with clothes and et cetera, et cetera. But there was a, such a strong inner life of mine um, that was, uh, you know, existing in parallel. And there's also a little part of me that has always broken away and watched, has been the observer. So it's created, I guess, maybe very fertile conditions to, again, to watch myself, to be a part of uh, the action and yet simultaneously watch myself and be able to take notes on, you know, my experiences and even how people uh, perceive me, which is, as I said, a big part of my identity. So, for instance, in India, there is this very strong typecasting that this is who you are and basically stay in your lane. You know, even writing the book and presenting my book close to the bone has been a bit of a challenge. For instance, even from marketing it, I do not perceive it as a celebrity memoir. It's very, very tricky. And, uh, you know, but then again, which genre does it, does it fall into? And people think, well, I think I know everything about her. I've read everything about her. Okay, you know, this model, actress, cancer, bus, what is there to find out? But, you know, I hope that when you actually obviously um, enter the words of the book, um, you'll understand that it's, uh, it's my, um, you know, it's, it's really my lifeline. It's became sort of my lifeboat and my ability to reach out to everyone. Because how do we connect? We connect through our failures. We connect through our obstacles. We connect through the ways that we are broken. So this is actually a way of breaking open my genes, breaking open my ribs, and actually you know, trying to present my heart on a platter. But to go back to the question of identity, so of course in India I'm perceived in a different way. Then of course I had to, at a point I felt very suffocated by the way that I was perceived. I wasn't able to, to actually break out of um, 
this glamour tag that I had and be able to pursue things that were close to my heart, you know, to perhaps curate art, to write uh, and be, you know, taken seriously, to pursue perhaps uh, roles in films that were not mainstream commercial roles. They were not offered to me in the end of the 90s. And I actually ended up um, saying no to a lot of uh, very mainstream um, very lucrative offers. And I had to leave, I had to reinvent myself. I went to London in order to reinvent myself. I became a student. And uh, yet that, I, being identified, uh, became a very strong uh, shadow that shadowed me everywhere I went. Even as I was trying to also develop my own voice and give voice to my inner life as well. So, of course, I managed to somehow or the other move from London to uh, Milano, to Paris, to uh, New York and L.A., and then finally came back to Canada. But, you know, it's sort of sheer willpower, I think, that pushed me on this trajectory. And to an extent, it's stubbornness and willful ignorance of the rules and how you are meant to live, right? Of course, I, I, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I carry a Canadian passport and that makes things a little bit easier for me. And yet, uh, as much as it wasn't that easy to travel and to trade in identities and citizenships, um, today, I think that the, the borders that we are creating in our minds and that are being projected out into our societies are creating even more difficulties in us actually being able to migrate and to move. And for me, movement is life. Stagnation is death. And I think that for, you know, just to finish up that thought, for me, identity is tectonic. And let me explain that a little bit. You know, identity is such a primal thing and yet it's constantly changing. You know, I think, again, in, in what I've uncovered in my Buddhist studies, because, because today I'm much more at peace with my identity. I own who I am in fullness, you know? And so it doesn't bother me as much when people try to label me, but that was because I had to shed each and every one of the labels of identity, and that in and of itself was a process to come to a place to understand that being at ease with change and instability, and yet finding an inner core of um, something that is enduring, that is not connected with my external identity, has been, I think, the most important part of my entire life in, in living and examined life. And the other thing about being nomadic is you're curious. You do embrace change, but I also always had a lot of questions in life, and I was always out seeking answers. And finally, after all of that seeking, maybe, I hope it might provide a shortcut to somebody, I had a lot of pain as well, and I had a lot of questions. And the pain drove me, and the questions drove me, and finally, I understood that actually, all the answers I could only find in stillness, which is very, very ironic, of course. Wow. Oh, beautiful. I you know, the book really is in many ways a journey of discovery and in that journey of discovery she goes literally across the world in many times running away from the situation that she finds herself in, that she's now become very, very complacent, much like a frog in boiling water. Well, we'll come to that in a second. You know, in writing the book, what I found fascinating reading the book was, uh, 
you actually leave out as much as perhaps you write in. And there are places that you refer to people as Mr. X or Mr. A. There are places where you talk about friends that we all know, we've, we've known, and so many people in common. But there's so much that's not also in the book. And if you read between the lines, there's so much that you haven't said. In your process of writing, how were you able to figure what you thought was kosher uh, and you kept it in, in the narrative flow? And what is it that, because there's obviously much hurt and much pain, especially when it comes to the relationships. Yes. You know, uh, the ending of the relationship with Maureen Awadia, for example, who, who literally sort of took Lisa under her, under, under her wings and made her this incredible, iconic, uh, glad rags uh, uh, cover woman, but that's not what you've addressed. Tell us a little bit about how those relationships came to an end, which is not here. <laughs> okay, so now we're digging for a little bit of dirt. <laughs> um, no, you know, I think... Not so much the no, dirt, I, but your, your inner sort of, you know... My because inner there, process. There are times where suddenly you sort of decide, that's it, and you move out of a home... Completely. No, absolutely. No, I absolutely, Sanjoy. I, I completely comprehend uh, what you're asking and I appreciate it. Because, yeah, it's a difficult thing. It's a challenging thing with a memoir. What to leave in, what to expand on, what to sort of, you know, in that sense, brush aside or not uh, go into in, in, in too much depth. And already my book is 400-odd pages. So, obviously, I had to uh, pick and choose carefully. But, you know, it, I, I, it's interesting that you pick up on endings, you know, beginnings and endings. You know, these are the things that also define our life, by and large. And a part of maybe what I decided to expand on, to share, and I do think I've been very candid in the book with whatever I have shared. Uh, candid from my point of view, it's my truth as far as I see it, of course. Uh, and at the same time, I didn't want to compromise perhaps other people's lives or intrude too much on their lives. Um, is I had to maybe look back on everything through the lens of compassion. And not just compassion for others, but compassion for the girl who I was. You know, I again entered the industry at 16 and I was very, very traumatized and I was carrying a lot of unresolved pain. And in a sense, becoming famous overnight, becoming a sensation, and not really on the basis of any huge accomplishment, if you get down to it, is very disorienting on its own and even more disorienting when you're a 16-year-old and you've been ripped from your family and your family is going through a great personal trauma. So I understood myself in a different way looking back through that lens because a lot of my beginnings would start very promisingly and very passionately as well when it came to certain romantic relationships. But the ends were always very dramatic and bitter and often very abrupt. And, you know, I, I mean, it's interesting because I was actually listening to... Um, uh, Leila Slimani talk yesterday and she was riveting and she was talking about of course writing her fiction and how at one point when she had to describe a very difficult scene she had to observe her character almost through a glass you know and observe her very clinically this action and then write about it from that place and I've almost had to do the opposite you know um, 
I've had to look back through a particular lens. I made a conscious choice and I said, I'm going to look back at everything through the lens of compassion. So I'm being compassionate for myself, the girl that I was, and at the same time being very, very realistic and candid about all the things that I did. Uh, and at the same time, trying to be not judgmental, even towards people in my own life. But and that it, kind of defined... Did it, did it heal you? Because the process, every time you revisit an incident, which is, yeah. you know, fairly traumatic in the book, it feels that you've come to that realization and the truth yourself, perhaps yeah. that you hadn't done till you actually wrote it down. Tell us a little bit about your own process mm. of writing and what it did to your... Uh, self-worth and self-confidence because you're such a free spirit mm -hmm. and every time somebody whether it's your parents or any of the people who wanted to own you or possess you have tried to sort of uh, you know embrace you more firmly than you wanted you've shaken them off and you've flown away uh, to a, a perhaps more comfortable space but perhaps you didn't understand that till the process of writing so tell us about the the healing process of this book it, it has been extremely healing, but my healing fortunately started previous to writing the book, and that was, again, maybe uh, one of the other compulsions to write this book is to be able to say and to give permission and show that it's okay again. You know, that, that life is a beautiful mess, and I truly believe that. There is something to be derived from every single moment. And also, there was a realization I came through in my healing process, which predated the writing by perhaps a few years, but is actually heavily embedded in the narrative of Close to the Bone. But, you know, I realized that, first of all, you know, obviously a lot of people ask me about cancer, and there's two questions they ask. They ask, first of all, my God, how did you know? Did you know you were sick, and how did you find out? And the second thing they ask is, how did you get through it? So I realized that both the seeds of the disease and the resilience with which to meet it were planted much earlier in my life. And that is even why I chose to write a memoir, you know, because I realized I couldn't write about these incidents in isolation from the rest of my life. Everything is connected to what came before. And there's sort of a beautiful pattern. There's a beautiful maze to our lives that we can uncover. And it sort of gave shape to, yeah, what appeared to be a very random life, my cardi waddling through my life. <laughs> and... Um, at the same time, being able to articulate it has been extremely, extremely healing. And um, I think it started, of course, when I was actually diagnosed with cancer and I wrote a blog about it called The Yellow Diaries. And that was the first time that I very openly and widely shared my passion for writing. And that blog, fortunately, I never thought about writing a blog and I even wrote about how it was such a spontaneous reaction because, again, it was my split life, the split identity. There was the one part of me who was still the public persona, the actress, and then there was the private life, the Lisa, who was struggling with this serious illness and uh, trying to negotiate the two sides of myself. And it actually intersected on the red carpet of the Toronto International Film Festival, a place where I feel deeply uncomfortable because as a woman, you're scrutinized. Also, my body was changing because of my treatment. I was on very heavy steroids. And I think I wrote in the book that a woman's changing body is public property because everyone is going to comment. Everybody is going to, you know, ask you very uh, penetrating questions as to why you look so different, you've gained weight, you've lost weight, you look tired, etc., etc. Everybody has an opinion about a woman's appearance, don't they? 
So that is why I always felt, um, you know, quite uncomfortable on the red carpet. And yet I thought maybe I can hijack this moment. So on the basis of all of these thoughts that were sort of um, swarming my head, I started writing the Yellow Diaries and just sharing very candidly what I was going, to, going through and chronicling my cancer journey. And that just broke something open. I think it was also the fact that I was open and vulnerable. And I think perhaps I might be the first so-called Indian personality who shared their cancer diagnosis publicly. But as much as you know, people think that you know, perhaps I might be helping others. I derived so much healing from that ability to be vulnerable and from others being able to come up to me and say, I see you, I understand what you're going through and I'm with you. And I think that there's a really a very strong place for that. Obviously literature is built around that. I didn't see the point of also writing close to the bone without being extremely candid, even though I get a lot of questions asking me, why were you so truthful? Like, what gave you the guts? And I was like, how can you write a book without being truthful? What would be the point of writing a memoir without being completely candid and truthful? I mean, do people do that? Uh, you know, I think one of the most incredible things, again, in the book is that there you are 16 years or 17 years, and you've come away, and you've been picked up from a fairly sheltered life in many ways, projected out there, and then you, in many ways, unsupervised, you will spend the rest of what? two decades or three decades. That in itself obviously created a shock to your system because you were nav navigating on the way that you knew how to navigate. And your journey in navigating your life from the covers of Glad Rags to uh, the Oscar carpet of LA. And at some point, I don't know whether it's after the Oscar ceremony or after TIFF, you write, was that a flash? I mean, was any of this really real? So did you sort of go through that whole I mean, everybody thinks that that's the glamorous, that's what the life is. But that's not truly no. what it is. Right? I'm so glad you asked me this. And that, again, was one of the primary reasons to write the book. So, uh, as I said, imagine, I want to narrate one very quick incident after this. But imagine that you are, as I said, you know, uh, propelled into a place where suddenly all the metrics by which society defines success, right, money, fame, recognition, um, offers, you know, potential, um, is suddenly dropped into your lap, right? I mean, by conventional thinking, that should make you very happy, correct? Because isn't that something that we are taught or conditioned to aspire to? Otherwise, why are we working so hard? Why are we looking at what our neighbor has and aspiring to have a bigger house, a bigger car, you know, more affirmation, more validation from the world? That's how we're conditioned. And yet, at the age of 16, I kind of received this package, gift-wrapped, addressed only to me. And yet, that was the darkest period of my life. And the point was that this package that has, we all have that package with our name on it, did not solve any of the soul's questions. In fact, it still continues to be, when I look back at one of the most, I mean, I had suicidal thoughts. I was uh, suffering from uh, an eating disorder. I had a lot of um, self-flagellating thoughts, uh, a lot of self-loathing. So on one hand, from externally, I was experiencing the heights, you know, it was sort of the uh, prime of my success and my, you know, um, fame in India. And privately, I was going through the deepest, darkest tunnel that 
you can imagine it was the dark night of the soul. And that fortunately very quickly cured me of this conceit that these are the things that I should aspire after. And that maybe might explain my very strange professional trajectory. Now, my professional trajectory makes no sense, which is why obviously there's a lot of my parallel inner life that I had to put in the book to kind of give it context. I mean, so, you know, so every time it appears that I experienced a great professional high, I would almost sabotage it or sort of take a left turn and or, do something or, or just different. run away or just run away or in this run case, away <laughs> not just run away to throw up because she's bulimic but just run away or run away and you know maybe that is another reason uh, you know why because i understood that these were not the things that i was aspiring for ever and the things that I was aspiring to do, uh, I managed to do quietly alongside, whether it was my spiritual seeking, whether it was the travel, whether it was, you know, finding teachers and masters who would unexpectedly fall into my life and give me uh, the kind of solace that I was seeking and help me to lead a more examined life. But to go back to this idea of identity and perceptions, I want to share a very quick anecdote from the book as well that might explain also why also the public me would never be able to live up to the real me. So I was about, uh, you know, probably 18 or 19, and again, experiencing the height of my success. And in those days, of course, this is all pre-digital era. This is all pre-social uh, media. So forgive me, probably if you're 35 or under, you may not have a reference point for how big I was at that time and how much my name, Lisa Ray, was actually um, equated with literally glamour goddess or, or glamour or beauty or whatever it was at that time. So there I was. So I used to uh, use my body and my appearance to act out. You know, when I was not in front of the camera or not attending events, I would have very ungrooved, un, uh, ungroomed, very uh, uncombed hair. I wore t-shirts with a lot of holes in it and very baggy clothes and no makeup. And of course, uh, I look very different, you know, without that whole grooming and that aura, aura and the aura that we expect, that we expect people in front of the camera to have. And, in, you know, in that persona, I was able to sort of move around and move through Bombay and, you know, um, unimpeded. And I still remember I was just having a coffee on my own in a, in a shop, in a little coffee shop in a five-star hotel. And there were two boys sitting next to me and they kind of like, look me up and down, you know? You know, when you're getting that look out of the periphery of your vision and, you know, one of them looks me up and down. He says, hey, look at her. She's not bad, huh? And um, the other one, you know, sort of shoots me a very casual glance and he says, Are, she's okay, but she's no Lisa Ray. Lisa, in... I... I will never live up to that image of myself, which you can imagine is very debilitating for a human being, and neither did I even aspire to be that. One, one of the big fights, absolutely. Even before cancer, you were fighting very much with uh, what we now know as uh, bulimia, and every time you, you went off and you, know, you, you, you wanted to throw up and you refused to eat, etc., just tell us, share with the audience how you were able to come out of that in, in, in some ways. Thank you, yes. That's, um, and again, something that I felt very uh, strongly about highlighting because I believe that, you know, as much as my struggles with uh, food eating disorders happened 35 years ago, I think it's still very, very relevant 
to uh, particularly in the world that we live today, the culture that we live today, and especially for uh, younger women, uh, which is why I wanted to highlight it. So I do feel that, you know, these eating disorders, in my understanding, even though I didn't actually get professional help, are also connected, you know, they're mental disorders as well, and also connected with emotional trauma on some level, you know. There's some part of you that does not feel worthy, just uh, simply does not feel lovable. And then also with this idea of control. Now, my life has spiraled out of control too many times for me almost to name. And, you know, a part of my uh, questioning has been ha about my relationship with change. And fortunately, through my Buddhist practices, I've come to a great sense of peace with this, this ineffable fact or truth of life that change is the only thing we can rely on. But, you know, when you're young and vulnerable and so you're going through so many dramatic changes and trauma, I think that perhaps the only way that I knew of controlling my environment was controlling my food. And on top of that, of course, what is, I think, extremely um, disturbing is that I was being rewarded by the world. You know, the thinner I got, the more that I shrunk, the more I was celebrated. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to put out there as well. And a really powerful thing, I hope, also for young women to maybe mull over. And it's really about taking back your own voice and your own power. We do not need outside validation from anybody. Your power is within you. And I actually get a little emotional when I talk about this because I know how much I struggled. I know how much I struggled even with casual sexism in the industry and how I was expected to just sort of swallow it and not react. If you reacted in the 90s, casual sexism, you know, just someone talking about my curves, right? And a friend, a good friend, and how I would, if I would actually have a set of um, thoughts that would quickly go through my mind. That's not right. He can't say that. But then soon after that, oh my God, if I actually say something, they'll think I'm not cool. And then, and then the third thought, the last time I actually objected, they said, yeah, but you pose in bathing suits, so you deserve it, nah? So that's been an ongoing thing. So I think that my struggle with bulimia only started to heal once I left India. And once I started committing myself to leading a very examined life, you know, to peeling away the layers and allowing all the labels to drop. And you know, it's interesting because often we think that healing, there's many different concepts of healing, but my notion of healing today is not going out there and necessarily learning something. I mean, I have had wonderful therapists and spiritual guides who have supported me. But at the end of the day, it's not about learning something that's going to make you better because there's something wrong with you or you're broken or you need to, you know, our whole educational system also is built around, you know, you need to learn more, you need to be better, you need to be more efficient, more productive, more this or that. And for me, healing has been about dropping everything and coming to the core of what it is, not just that I am. Inner realizing. Inner realization, but that everybody is, that core that actually connects all of us. We're really running out of time. I've got to open it up. But the one beautiful image that you have in the book is red carpet on Oscar night. You're, you're doing the, uh, or, or maybe it was at TIFF, you're doing the red carpet. And at the end of that is your mother, your parents, your mother in a wheelchair, your father uh, are standing beside. You go and give them a hug. And yet you had run away from the very image of your mother in a wheelchair after the accident. Uh, and tell us 
that journey and, and perhaps how did you heal that? How did you heal and come back to your parents and their being? And then we'll open it up. And then we'll open it up. Thank you. I'm, <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Anjoyna. You're making me emotional, um, which is important, I think. Also, I, another journey that I've gone through is also the journey from hiding emotions to, you know, very much sharing them, to, to having the strength to be vulnerable and to share my emotions. Um, and, you know, my mother and I... Um, you might say we're twins. I, today I would say we're psychic twins and we're very similar, but obviously, I mean, anyone who has had a tempestuous, conflicted relationship with their mother will probably agree with me that often it's because you're so similar that you trigger each other, that you press each other's buttons. And my mother and I were no exception. And my mother was really, really the, the heart and the glue of our family. My father and I shared our, our personalities. We we're both introverted and lovers of, you know, books and, and ada, you know, uh, useless philosophical discussions. But my mother was the doer in our house. And, you know, it was her presence that actually kept us running smoothly. And uh, when I, you know, hit my raging, hormone-filled teenage years, of course, my mother and I fell into a lot of conflict with each other. But I still had this very safe, secure idea that I had this beautiful, idyllic little sanctuary in my family, not necessarily a place, but in my family that I could always return to. And that was broken the day that we were involved in a very serious car accident that really, really redefined the trajectory of my entire life. And um, at the last possible moment, my mother and I switched seats. Um, you know, uh, my mother and father normally would always sit in the front of the car where we always habitually wear a seatbelt and I would sit in the back. And that one journey, at the very last moment, we switched seats. And our car actually had to, uh, my father had to swerve to avoid an oncoming car on this country road outside of Toronto. And we rolled and my mother was ejected from the car and her, her neck was broken. As a result of that, she was paralyzed for the, the rest of her life. And it, that is really what started my entire career. We're sort of circling back to that idea of accidental actress, you know, and why my career started on the edge of a blade. On one side was fame and fortune, and the other side was great personal trauma and uh, sadness. But coming back to my mother, um, as I said, a lot of my movement, a lot of my travels could also be defined as running away from something, running away from my pain, not being able to see my vibrant, vital, alive mother stilled in her wheelchair for so long. And uh, running away from even therapy. So it was really only after years, and you know, and, and, in fact, my realization of coming back to myself and dealing with my trauma and my own mother started actually in drama school where we did a lot of breath work where you're opening up emotions and from there moved into meditation. And I started, I think, really seeing my mother through different eyes. Um, you know, it was tempestuous until the end. I'm not gonna, I don't have a neat ending until my mom passed and I was actually at her bedside and um, I gave her permission to leave. And it was directly related to a Buddhist teaching, which stays with me even today, which I'd like to share, that very often we don't realize how intertwined love and attachment are. And they are often, again, opposed to each other in the way that we practice them. Sometimes we hang on to someone and we think it's love, it's actually attachment. And it was very starkly 
uh, illustrated in my mother, where she was actually by sure, sheer willpower hanging on to her life, even though it was a life of great suffering and difficulty, because she was basically paralyzed from the clavicle down, um, and yet lived very vibrantly. But she was, she was basically hanging on from my father and I, and she was waiting for us to give her permission to leave. And we finally managed to give her permission. But it's only today, and when I was writing close to the bone, and that's why it becomes very emotional to me, and those were probably the most difficult passages, and I still get very teary. And I think that grief is something that never leaves you. To be honest, I don't think that there's any cure for it, and there needn't be a cure. It's now simply a part of my life. But I recognize and I see her in such a different life today, a light today, and... Um, you know, I don't know if she's around me, but I do think that she's living through me today in the way that I'm living my life, maybe as a tribute to her and in alignment to her values and the values that she instilled in me. Beautiful. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepperbytes is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Laksh Datta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.